So I ended up actually doing a stress test on him, and it was grossly abnormal. Did an angiogram, and he had a proximal LAD significant lesion. And he ended up getting stent. Now, this is a 36-year-old, right? So you're like, man, he's got no risk factors. So, you know, always, always trust yourself in what you're hearing. Hello, and welcome to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. (laughs) On this episode, our guest is Dr. Neil Patel, a cardiologist currently working for a large group practice in Southern California. Dr. Patel did his internal medicine residency at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, where he also completed a chief residency. He later went on to fellowship in cardiology at the University of Maryland before joining a practice in Southern California. Dr. Patel is a longtime friend and mentor. He's an excellent educator, and I'm so glad to have him on the show. We'll be discussing the evaluation of the patient with chest pain, And we spent a lot of time on this episode talking about the ins and outs of cardiac imaging and cardiac stress testing. I think this is an area that can intimidate a lot of internists and general practitioners because there's so many options and so many new tests that even cardiologists, I think, don't exactly know what to do with. And we asked Neil all about these topics and get uh, pretty detail-oriented here. I think you'll find it very informative. So without further ado... Here's Dr. Neil Patel. Hi, Neil. How's it going? Hey, how are you guys doing? Neil Patel here. Doing great. Just me. I'm the only one doing great, apparently. (laughs) Tony doesn't want to say hi. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Neil. So so I know we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, we're going to talk about chest pain today. One of the biggest things, if you look at, you know, whatever, anything that we do, right, people's symptoms and what people are complaining of and we're worried about X, Y, and Z, just to kind of put a couple of numbers, right? So of all of all the chest pain that comes to the ER, maybe 10% is actual ACS, right? So acute coronary mm-hmm. syndrome, mm-hmm. things that need to be acted upon in some way, shape, or form, whether it be testing, whether it be uh, adjusting medications, uh, whether it be uh, uh, angiogram. Uh, and, you know, so, but that number is a lot. So although 10% doesn't seem like a lot, but the number of visits in the ER per year are enormous uh, for chest pain, and that's obviously a very common complaint. Um, and people are just worried, you know, chest pain, and, and it's an assumption that everything comes, that, that's got to be uh, heart-related. Um, but I do think that when it comes to us as physicians, regardless of the symptom, uh, you know, history and history and history are such a huge thing. And, you know, we all learn that. Uh, in med school. And I think sometimes it gets lost because obviously your days or everyone's days are laid out differently once you kind of branch off into your, into your realms. And sometimes you don't have time, you know, necessarily to kind of dig into that. But if you get someone right, 58, diabetic, high blood pressure, obesity, and, you know, they're having some symptoms that are concerning. See, when we talk about low, intermediate, high risk, the way I kind of approach these people is kind of what's their risk factors for having CAD, right? If this is a 26-year-old with nothing going on, fully active, 
chances of him having obstructive CAD, right? Critical narrowing causing heart blockage is probably extremely low. Just, just by the fact that you can get older, um, age alone carries a very powerful predictor. So, you know, the person who's 56 versus the person who's 86, right? The 56 depends on what you're hearing, what else is kind of going on. That person is probably intermediate risk, especially in this setting, right? Diabetes, hypertension, right. obesity. And you want to ask yourself, well, okay, so they have intermediate risk for a CAD, but is what they're complaining of, is, is, is their symptom actually related to CAD, right? There's two different questions, right? One is to say, we, we kind of get these consults all the time. This person's right. intermediate risk and patients having chest pain. So then I go to talk to them, right? I had a patient today and uh, so she was 67. Uh, she was a smoker. Uh, she was diabetic, which by the way, smoking and diabetes by and far uh, are the two big things that you kind of, you know, when you hear it, when you see that, Kind of got to really press hard because they carry um, they, they carry it's just very powerful predictors of of development of uh, uh, plaque and calcium and, and CAD and so then she's starting to tell me her story she goes yeah you know I get this chest pain every time I I move my right arm and I lift it above my head my chest hurts mm-hmm. now you know so you say to yourself well is that really you know related to a blockage you know a critical blockage you say to yourself well. The heart, like any other muscle, uh, when it's active, when the heart rate goes up, when it's stressed, it's going to need more blood. If there's a real blockage there, there should hopefully be some degree of exertional component, right? So mm-hmm. I think that people may or may not be familiar with the whole you know, Diamond Forrester model. And they say, you know, well, what is the characteristic? Was it provoked by stress? And then uh, did it go away? Um, and, I, you know... We can talk about the models, although I'll tell you to look at it differently, which is the models are nice, but when you break the models down, all of them come down to history physical, right? (laughs) They say, do you have a history of a stroke? Do you have a history of smoking? Do you have a history of high blood pressure? Do you have a history of CAD? And then you say, well, what was it that you were doing when your symptoms came on? And then you say, well, what are your symptoms? And so the person that I saw today, you know, that's not related to her. Her, her, her probability of having CAD, moving your arm and reproducing the pain, yet while she walks up a hill, she doesn't get the pain. Mm. You know, I was like, look, you have risk factors for developing CAD. Chances are you probably have CAD because you smoke, you have all these things, so you have the setup for it. But what you're complaining of does not seem to be bothering me. And that sometimes is hard for people to do because it's, you know, it's kind of like committing and then you're worried like, oh man, but if I send them out and they have a heart attack, like what's going to happen, right? You're worried about, you know, nowadays we're worried about a lot of things. We're about legality, right? We're worried yeah. about, we're worried about, oh, wait, we don't want to just send them out. And then this person should just get a stress test. But I think it matters, you know, you, you find out what's triggering it, really what's the problem. Uh, and then you say to yourself, well, how active are they in their day? And I don't necessarily mm-hmm. ask people, do you, can you climb up a flight of steps? I know we always, you know, talk about Mets and we say, uh, can you climb up a flight of steps with the groceries? Oh, you can. Okay. Then you're four Mets. I, the way I word it is, what's the most physically active thing you do in your day? When you leave it open-ended, may you be surprised. You know, people are like, Oh, mm-hmm. I, um, I, uh, I walked into the end of the driveway and get my mail. You know, if you, mm-hmm. if you ask them, are you physically active? They would have answered yes. 
and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But then, if, but if you ask them, hey, what what exactly do you do? You might get some interesting answers. You know, things that you're just like, wait a minute, that does not not anything to do with it. So, you know, my first approach is kind of verifying their history, kind of getting a sense for who they are, kind of getting a sense for how active they are, and say, okay, one bucket. Do you think that there's some chance that they have CAD? If so, what are the reasons? You say to yourself, okay, totally fine. But now you say to yourself, well, what are their symptoms? And outside, in respective of their risk factors, you say to yourself, well, what is triggering the pain? What does the pain sound like? And based on that, I'm going to try to combine the two and say, are they low, intermediate, or high risk? So let me, let me give you another example. I had a 36-year-old come into my office who said, so never smoked, no high blood pressure, no high cholesterol, no family history of CAD. But he's like, man, doc, you know, he's like, every time I have to run up this hill, I get this chest pressure right in the middle of my chest, right in the middle. And I, every time I go up that hill, you know, if I'm on flat land, I'm fine. If I'm doing everything else, it's okay. But every single time I'm going up there. So he, he uh, uh, for, for him, I said, okay, well, look, his risk factors, not really that much, right? He's 36. Age doesn't really count. He's got no other history. He's got no cholesterol. I, I double checked his lipids. Um, I said, right, you know, you're not eating, you know, I mean, um, you're not definitely not smoking. He's like, no, no alcohol use. I said, okay, and, and no, no other illicit drug use, um, which, by the way, illicit drug use accelerates CAD, so cocaine and methamphetamine. So just to keep that in my back of my mind, because we see a lot of that too. So then we say, but his history, forget how old he is, forget his risk factors. You hear the story and you're like, man, this is like really, it sounds really bad, right? I think all, th- yeah, all three of you would probably agree. Right. right. Despite his age, I'm running uphill and I just get this mid-sternal chest pressure and pain that just won't go away un- until I stop. So I ended up actually doing a stress test on him and it was grossly abnormal. Did an angiogram and he had a proximal LAD significant lesion. And he ended up getting stent. Now, this is a 36-year-old, right? So you're like, man, he's got no risk factors. So, you know, always always trust yourself in what you're hearing, right? And, of course, you can only go by what, what patients tell you, and that's, but that's true for any disease, right? Like you can't – I mean, you can ask as many questions as you want, but if, if either they interpret it differently or they don't – are not forthcoming with a lot of the information, it's kind of hard for you to kind of help them out. But for the most part – you want to kind of narrow down, you know, like when do you get this? What are you doing? And how does it affect your life? And then you can definitely make a decision as to where you should go. So I'll tell you that the low risk people, so young people, no risk factors, even middle-aged people with no real risk factors, you know, you got to kind of say to yourself, well, you know what, let, let me see what the story sounds like. And then maybe I'll, I'll do some stress testing. If you look at the intermediate group, they're the people that, as with most testing, definitely can be encouraged to get some type of testing, and we'll talk about that. And the high-risk people is, oh, I've had a heart attack before. I've had strokes before. I still smoke. My A1C is 10. Um, my blood pressure is 180. And, yeah, every time I walk across you know, my living room, uh, I get winded and I get this tightness. Um, no pain, but I get this tightness or this shortness of breath. You know, that person's clearly at high risk of having something that's unstable uh, or, or having a high critical lesion that probably is there and needs should be looked at. 
Mm-hmm. And when you look at like risk and benefits of all these procedures, you know, when you have someone who's high risk, the risk and benefit, the, the benefits tend to outweigh the risk because you're, you're preventing another heart attack uh, or you're helping them feel better if you do the angiogram and you find something. In the intermediate group, you're just trying to say, well, who do I need to really like, take care of and who do I not? So, so getting back to our patient, you know, 58, diabetic, high blood pressure, obesity, family history. For, so for about four weeks, intermittent chest pain, for example, right? And we always talk about characteristic and we say, oh, sharp, most likely is not cardiac related. Or we say, you know, um, stabbing pain or electric pain is most likely not cardiac. And that is probably true for the majority of people. But in this person, you know, I don't think it's wrong to stress this person because it's not really sure. Maybe that person's not giving you a full story. They're not really giving you a full idea like, yeah, when I walk, when I do this. So for the intermediate people, I would say, you know, stress testing is totally appropriate. And so the main ones that we have, um, so you could do a treadmill stress test, which I think all of us are familiar with. So EKG, put them on a treadmill, and we look for any ischemic changes, provided that their their baseline EKG is, is normal. So if you're gonna if you're gonna send someone for a treadmill stress test, make sure their EKG is normal, meaning there's no LVH, there's no ST changes that are already present. Arresting ST changes don't really mean much. Um, that's why we end up calling them non-specific. So you know, someone who's asymptomatic and you see that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ha- they have some critical lesions sitting there, you know, especially, again, asymptomatic. So you just say to yourself, okay, ST changes with symptoms, different story, and because you don't know, you kind of have to err on the side of caution. So that's just kind of like a tidbit. And what about, uh, so so we, we see a lot of this, this kind of case you're talking about, intermediate risk, person comes in, they've been having symptoms intermediately for like a month or two. And then what if they have like T-wave inversions on their, that's, that's like the bane of my existence. Like everyone always has some T-wave inversions somewhere. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I would, I would probably say that, you know, in this person, I probably would say, yeah, it, you know, again, that kind of pushes you more to kind of look further, right? You say to yourself, okay, are you going to necessarily, you know, send them to the ER based on that? No. Um, are you going to send them, you know, based on uh the you know you're going to send them to the er if you feel that like they're having actual pain right now that's concerning you know Mm -hmm. so for example if you had pain and t-wave inversions for sure right that's like you got to send him um and that kind of makes sense but if he's asymptomatic and you have these changes kind of hard to say it's kind of hard to say but that just gives you another sign that this could be that this is more likely that needs testing um because it's combining everything, right? Everything you know, your history, your physical, and, and kind of uh, the EKG, which is, a, is an also an important part. So, And those are okay for uh, if, if they have those and we're sending them for an exercise test that's not a – for an exercise EKG test, the T-wave inversions are okay? You know, I personally would, would do that with imaging just okay. because – so, you know, a lot of times this is what happens, right? You get a, an, an abnormal stress test uh, with some subtle SD changes – but no chest pain, and the person walked for like like five stages. You know, they went for fifteen minutes. And you're like, well, what does this mean? So, I usually say repeat those people with some type of imaging because the EKG can have many false positives, specifically in females. 
Now, we don't know if it's the estrogen or, or kind of just the way the leads are, but they tend to get a lot of false positives, especially inferiorly. Um, and those people, I tend to say, you know what, just to, like even from, from the right, right from the beginning, I don't send them just for a treadmill. I say, just do a treadmill with imaging. And the reason to do treadmill is that it kind of gives you more information about them as a, as an individual, how much are they really walking? You know, what happens to their blood pressure? Um, and you know, if this is truly exertional, you know, chances are most people that get on the treadmill don't push themselves as much in their real day and uh, their everyday as they do on the treadmill, right? Cause that mm-hmm. treadmill goes up every three minutes. It goes up higher and faster. And still by the, by, and just for you guys, when you, when you tell people this, usually by stage three, people are still, still walking. You know, it's a brisk walk. It's an uphill walk, but people, people have this perception that I'm going to be put on the treadmill and I got to start running right away. And that's just not the case. Um, first stage, anyone should be able to coast through second stage. People should be able to coast through and third stage is kind of different, but if you can finish stage three, you know that you've given us a really good for, for most people, uh, not like the ultra young people who are fit, but if you can finish stage three, in my book, you, you, you've done, you've done quite a bit of exertion and we should be able to get the information that we need. So so that's, you know, that's the, that's the usual exercise treadmill. That's what we're looking for. You know, this person, you know, obese, um, it depends exactly how big. I personally would probably just send him with something with imaging like Echo. Um, still make him walk if he can walk because mm-hmm. I want to I know how much he can do. And now, can you get good enough windows on a stress Echo for someone who's that obese, though? You know, you'd be surprised. Sometimes imaging is worse in the thinner people because the, there's a there's a more uh, rib space, right. and air is a complete enemy of the ultrasound. So gotcha. there tends to be actually uh, we've had plenty of thin people where the imaging is horrible, and we've had plenty of obese people where the imaging is perfect. So what we usually do is we always do a baseline echo before we start, and okay. that's true from even where I where I was in fellowship. So um, you'll know you know whether this is going to work or not. And your sonographer should be able to tell you, like, look, we're not going to be able to get any images. Uh, and if that ends up being the case, you can change them to like a you know nuclear imaging. But so so for for CAD, how, how do you feel that stress echo compares with uh, MPS or um, new yeah. med stress test? Yeah, in yeah. So so echo imaging is more specific, and nuclear uh, perfusion scan or MPI, as we call it, myocardial perfusion imaging, is more sensitive. So. Um, you know, but there's also radiation involved. So it kind of, kind of depends, right? If, if it's someone who's like in their forties, um, no real reason to, to kind of subject them to radiation, especially if they have good imaging on on their echo. Um, there's just not a point, but sometimes you need to do those things. Uh, and that kind of is, is variable. So, you know, so, so those are the people that can walk. So let's talk about mm-hmm. that for a second. So what about people who can't walk, right? Someone who's got a knee replacement coming up. You don't know if they can do four meds. You want to give them some type of cardiac clearance. They're older. You're not really sure if they're, you know, having any issues, but you want to kind of work them up before they, before you clear them for surgery. You know, they can get a, you know, dobutamine echo, right? So they just lay there. We give them dobutamine, increase their heart rate. We see what happens to their heart under the stress. That's one option. The other option is that you give them, you know, a vasodilator, so regadenosine or adenosine, 
um, nuclear imaging, and you see if there's any areas that that are not getting enough um, flow. And I will say that um, you know, out of both of them, you know, both you know they they have a little bit of their drawbacks. Like you give someone dobutamine, you can provoke arrhythmias, which still should be short lived, but it's always nerve wracking to see that. Mm-hmm. With the adenosine, although it's short term, people feel nauseous, uh, uh, headaches, uh, shortness of breath because of of the way that their adenosine, regadenosine work in the lungs, um, and and then other receptors in the body. So, and again, also short lived. So, um, you know, ordering either one for people who can't um, who can't walk is totally appropriate. Uh, again, realizing that um, nuclear imaging is more sensitive, but echo imaging is more specific. We see uh, a lot more, for whatever reason, at CashLack, most of our patients seem to be getting nuclear, nuclear yeah, medicine scans. We do a scans. lot of MPS. So I yeah, will tell do. you, yeah, so, I mean, I'll be honest, where I was at uh, for training, um, we had really good echo, but the, 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 um, the, our nuclear lab was also very well known. Uh, and the head of our nuclear lab um, has written many, many books and is well-renowned in nuclear imaging. So we trusted their reads. Um, so I think it matters, you know, kind of institutionally, what are your drawbacks kind of getting a sense or a feeling like, you know, how often is something called abnormal? You know, if everything is called abnormal all the time, that kind of decreases my, my, um, my confidence in using that modality. So it kind of depends on your institution. If you find that all the myocardial perfusions are maybe abnormal or artifact or subtle ischemia, that's not really helpful to you guys, right? It's yeah, kind of, it's yeah. like, is it there or is it not there? And sometimes you do have to call what you see. Um, but if you see a pattern, like it's happening all the time, um, then it's kind of like, well, maybe I need to do a different imaging technique. And, and it's, it's good that we have more than one, right? Imagine if you just yeah. had one and then you're kind of stuck with all these reads and you're like, what's going on? I don't really know. So, um, so, Equally in fellowship, we use both. Um, although I will say that maybe it was, um, I don't know, maybe a lot of the people just believe like, individual uh, subsections. Like, for example, people who had renal transplants, every time they were listed, they got a dobutamine echo. Mm-hmm. That was just what those surgeons did. But if anyone had like an orthopedic surgery coming up, everyone got a nuclear stress test, <laughs> you, know, so- you know, for like clearance. So, you know, people have their own... Right, the ordering physicians also should know that they have more than one option. But sometimes yeah. what happens is that you develop your own practice and you say to yourself, well, I've always ordered this and I trusted it. Well, I'm just going to stick with it. But I will caution you to remember that we do have to think of things like radiation. We, we can't just say, just get it done and whatever. You know, we, we, really, we really shouldn't be doing that. We should be trying to do the right thing for the patient. So you know, 50, a 40-year-old who always has chest pain should not constantly be getting nuclear stress test. That's right. just my opinion. You know, it just Neil, doesn't make any and sense. And just to quantify it for the listeners, I, I had looked this up uh, and I was kind of alarmed because uh, I had never really quantified this before. But basically, like, every year, just walking around just for solar radiation, you get about, like, one millisievert of radiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the American College of Radiology recommends that you try to limit your lifetime radiation dose to... 100 millisieverts. So I guess if you live 100 years, you shouldn't have any stress. If you plan to live 100 years, you shouldn't have any like any sort of radiation from cardiac imaging or whatever. Right. But for a chest X-ray is 0.02 millisieverts. And 
a nuclear medicine, uh, like a thallium stress test is 29 millisieverts, That's right. maybe 25 if you, uh, depending on depending on the source that you look at, and a SESTA maybe is about 12. So that's anywhere from like 500 to 1,000, depending on what numbers you use, but it's it, it could be up to 1,000 times the amount of radiation you get from a chest X-ray. So and, and, like, and, and that's important. And it's the same thing with CAT scans, right? Sometimes, yeah. sometimes we come down to CAT scans and MRIs, and we say, you know, what's better? And I think sometimes, you know, we get people all the time in the ER that come in through chest pain who always get ruled out for a PE. You know, we, we had that in oh, residency, man. you know, you come in and it's like, I'm just going to rule you out for PE. And it's hard, man. I mean, it, you know, to make that distinction and say, wait a minute, like, you know, is this really needed? Um, uh, a lot of it is also fear, like not knowing. Right. Right. But, but I think that that kind of sometimes limits us in our confidence in using our history ability and our physical. And there's a reason why that's taught in medical school. Right. Uh, or I hope it still is right. History and physical history and physical, like, and you learn that in residency, or you should, because you that 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 in general shouldn't steer you wrong, right? If you just start choosing people in buckets, that will steer you wrong. Um, you know, for example, I had, there was a patient who um, came in uh, hypoxic to seventy four percent, had some shortness of breath, um, and was um, diagnosed with COPD and sent upstairs. You get an echo, the RV is completely blown out. I said, you got to rule them out for PE. You know, you would think like that would have been done, right? Mm-hmm. With someone that hypoxic mm-hmm. and it wasn't and she had a saddle embolus. So, you know, sometimes you just think like, ah, you know what, this person's this. And, and so, but you got to, you got to take the extra few minutes to kind of dig in and, and kind of be able to, to make your right call. But anyway, um, but yeah, the, the radiation dose is, is, is enormous. Um, and cause, cause I can think of at least one or two patients in my panelment that I've looked back and I'm like, you've had a s- nuclear stress test every two years for the past like 10 years. <laughs> I, I was going to say one thing that I always tell my trainees is understanding the difference between ACS and CAD. And I, th- I think one of the problems that we have with a lot of these patients that are admitted for chest pain rule outs is that the, the residents that we, that we, that we train, uh, oftentimes on an, on admission they'll order that MPI or MPS I guess depending on if where, where you're training what it's called, yeah. um, and this patient may not have a pre-existing history of CAD but they're they're coming in with some you know they're in inter- intermediate risk and so they're they're already ordering this uh, th- this this prog or not, I wouldn't this this test at this point that they've already received five six ad nauseum times at this point, um, and I think it's important to understand that most lesions that actually cause ACS may not be they, they they may not be uh, 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 significant lesions seen on on coronary angiography. Um, there's a couple of articles that I have saved from the 90s and 80s. I think they're great articles that basically show that the that uh, the majority of our of our MIs come from previously uh, non uh, uh, non critically yeah. uh, stenotic lesions. That's right. So it, it's important to, to understand that that those those um, uh, plaques that rupture are likely your smaller plaques, not your larger plaques that cause stable disease, stable symptoms. And when your patients present to the ED with these stable symptoms, understanding that it may not be, you, you may not have to continue to order these 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 same tests. Um, um, you actually said it perfectly right. <laughs> that you know, the the future MIs tend to come with the ones that are like fifty percent, you know, right, uh, right. and sixty percent. Not the ones that are necessarily eighty percent. They 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 tend what, to give you your chronic stable angina. You know. Um, what, what do you think about endovascular ultrasound to identify those non 
non-critically stenotic lesions. Yeah, I mean, I would say we don't do it routinely um, uh-huh. because it adds to procedure time, and some of them, depending on what you use, may need extra contrast. And right. so I think you, we tend to do it in the in, in the uh, in the settings of is the stent properly deployed? Okay, uh, so it there... doesn't seem to add any prognostic value. No, to, not uh... really, because right when you go when you go to secondary prevention for MI, mm-hmm. you're still going to do your aspirin, statin. Uh, right. lower the blood pressure, right? You're still going to do those regardless of what you see there, right? There, there's, no, okay. there's no additional pill or intervention that we do saying that, oh, this one's 50%, it's going to cause an MI, um, so we should add this medication, right? Those medications have already been added on. The question is, is there anything else added? And I usually tell people that, you know, you do what you can do, right? So control your cholesterol, control your weight, um, control eating habits, um, control your diabetes, control your hypertension, and you're doing and stay active, and you're doing what you can do. Right, blood flow right. is the most powerful. It's the most powerful way to kind of keep arteries open. No, is the is the best way to keep your arteries open. Is to keep the blood flowing, and so and that's why sometimes we have some stenoses that we see on angiogram that we don't intervene on because we see that there's there's a, enough mm-hmm. flow, and so then we say to we just say to the patient, you know, I say to him, you need exercise, you know. Just keep exercising. As long as you're not feeling anything, you're totally fine, and that should take care of itself. So, oh. um, yeah, no, I agree that not everyone necessarily needs um, a stress test. Some people just need their medication adjustment. Is their blood pressure 180? Is their heart rate like resting at 90? Um, do they need long-acting nitroglycerin? You know, not necessarily that everyone needs to have a stress test, especially if their um, troponins are negative. Right, mm-hmm. they come in with a story that sounds real, but their troponins are negative. I first look at their meds. I first say, "Hey, you know, what can we do to alter that?" Because we know that medication um, is also very powerful. Lifestyle modification is very powerful. It's not necessary that everyone needs a stent. Uh, we know that from the Courage trial that you know not everybody, and the people who are getting stents for the fifties. Fifty, sixty percent lesions weren't necessarily having better outcomes, and th- and that was one of the main studies that kind of showed you know power of of, of medical therapy. Um, you know, obviously, if you have eighty percent lesion and you're having symptoms, that that makes sense. Um, but what about the asymptomatic patient that has a fifty percent lesion? That should not be fixed with a stent. Um, that is that you're going to kind of stick with um, you know medication and trying to alter other parameters. Um, because you got to remember, calcium hardening of the heart arteries is not unique to the heart. Right? That that hardening mm-hmm. is happening everywhere in the body. Things that cause strokes, things that cause claudication um, or peripheral vascular disease, uh, that's all part of the same game. So you gotta you gotta kind of also sometimes step back and say, well, everything kind of needs to be altered here. It's not just this. Um, I know we mentioned one thing that, so the stress testing, we talked about that and, you know, we mentioned CAT scan. So, you know, coronary CT seems to be a pretty big thing that people are, or maybe utilizing or not utilizing so much. So I'll tell you that, you know, the, the, the person where it's not appropriate is the low risk, you know, to, to say that I just want to know, um, doesn't really help you. Uh, and, and the CAT scans have a lot more, um, uh, radiation than than uh, uh, than obviously your X-rays and things like that, but it has a slightly less than than your myocardial perfusion. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I when I was looking this up, it, it it seems like they're getting better at lowering the radiation dose, but it was it was predicting anywhere from like three to fourteen millisieverts if you're getting a coronary CT angiogram, and about one millisievert if you're getting a just a coronary artery artery calcium score. Yeah. So what's the difference? So the CAC score, the calcium score is just straight non-contrast. You're just looking at how much calcium is there and they have a way to kind of compute what your total number is. Um, and usually we say, you know, above a hundred, uh, you know, you should try to have, um, yeah, risk factor modification, et cetera. But above 400 is definitely considered high. However, knowing that there's calcium in the LED, knowing that there's calcium elsewhere, you know, what do you do with that information? So I will tell you that when we ordered it, or at least when I order it, and some of my colleagues from cardiology order it, all we're looking for is, is um, osteoproximal disease, right? Someone okay. whose story is intermediate, you're not really sure, but you're not convinced that they need an angiogram, like an actual invasive procedure that carries the risk of, you know, um, dissection and, and things of that nature. You say to yourself, maybe they can get a, a coronary CT, and as long as there's not proximal disease, uh, you know, like I said, left main disease or proximal mm-hmm. LED, you're just going to treat them medically. But what happens is that if you're not in tune to that in, in terms of what you're looking for, you're going to get a result back that says has calcium X, Y, and Z. And then you're going to say, oh my God, you know, like, like we need to go look at this further. So I wouldn't necessarily just order it on. So again, low risk probability, absolutely not. And it's definitely okay. also not indicated for high risk again, based on history and, and physical, because mm. it can, we've had a, a couple cases where the coronary calcium um, was read as like five or 600. Literally, they've gotten a cath, not much of anything. Okay. Now, I don't know, we could never figure those out. We can never figure out why that would have been, like we expected definitely to find, you know, something. Yeah. But it's happened on more than one occasion. And so it kind of goes to the point, which is like, know your test, know what you're looking for, and then say, is it okay for this patient to get it that's sitting in front of me? You know, try not to do it the other way around, which is symptom, I'm going to get this test because you're going to have many issues with that. And and just another caveat to the coronary CT, two things, BMI, we have a cutoff, you know, greater than 35, the imaging gets kind of dicey. And number two is if they're not in a sinus rhythm or a regular rhythm, it it almost doesn't help because they have to gate it so if they're having a fib or if they're having a lot of PACs or PVCs, it's not the right test. It just is not going to okay. be as accurate. So that's that's the calcium scoring. But when we do CT angio, we do a calcium score first. And if there isn't significant amount, then we inject the dye and we run them again. And then we say for sure, you know, calcium score and CT angio zero for calcium, no obstructive CAD. What is the negative predictive value for the CAC score? So if you have a, a CAC score of zero... How oh, that's very good. Prognostic that's it. That. You're done. You're done. Okay. You don't need to do any more further testing. Their chest pain, etc. That is not related yeah. to their. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, a lot of the times great... when we get that, we do that. If right, I've, uh, like last week, I ordered or I got, I got three results back, and all three of those people that I sent them for, all of them were zero. That's exactly right. why I sent it to them. You know what I mean? That was why I why I wanted it because I wanted to know that it was zero because their story didn't sound real but they kept coming in with the symptoms. Now, uh-huh. of course, you can tell them that you may still have the symptoms, but at least you know that it's not from blocked arteries. You know what I mean? Right. And sometimes that is helpful for the patient. So, Yeah, and the, the reason why I asked that, there was a, 
an, an, an article that's a favorite of mine that I talk with the uh, with some of the trainees about. Um, it's from Jack Cardiovascular uh, Imaging from 2015. It's actually, t the title is wonderful. A 15-year warranty period for asymptomatic individuals without coronary artery calcium, a prospective follow-up of 9,715 individuals. Um, yeah. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> trial. Because yeah. uh, I've, sh I've shown this to a few patients with a CAC score of zero. said, hey, look, you're good for 15 years. Goodbye. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, um, I know that the, I, I, I remember that study. It just seemed, 15 just seems like a lot. It, it does seem like a lot, but man, it, it makes people happy, at least the patients. Oh, and when course. they come back with chest pain in two years, then we can reevaluate them and find out right, the studies exactly. maybe not appropriate. Exactly. Um, so I, we, we can talk about this. So I will say that from most nuclear scanning um, is good for one to two years. One year in the diabetic, meaning if it's normal, uh, mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then two years if, it, if it's a non-diabetic. I, I would probably also say around two years for exercise treadmills and, and um echo imaging so th that's roughly my cutoff because now obviously if it's a 26 year old and somehow they get a CAC score of zero uh, <laughs> then that's good for at least five or six years in my mind I mean even probably more than that because Gosh, unless they're it, not 15 okay. in, yeah, unless they're altering their you know uh, environment in the sense that they start smoking two packs a day they start drinking they start doing drugs you know but things like that okay. Okay. <laughs> then you know then obviously, then that's something that that needs to be considered. But you have to remember that when you're doing stress imaging, you're looking at functional testing. When you're doing coronary CT, you're looking at anatomical imaging. And and just because you find calcium on a CAC score doesn't mean it's functionally significant. So we've seen that too, where we get referrals for um, someone who's got a high CAC score, and the symptoms are kind of like not much of anything. So either we'll put them on a treadmill to make sure that if that stuff is real, it's not causing any issues or depending on, on the, on the circumstance, we may get a nuclear stress test just to say, look, not an issue. Um, we'll just, con again, continue to treat them with, um, statin and, uh, aspirin and, um, and other, other, uh, uh modification. And, and, and talking about that, uh, coronary CT, um, the anatomical versus the functional imaging. That was uh, last year, uh, 2015, there was the, the promise trial where they, they basically looked at that. And I've, I've heard that that's controversial among cardiologists because basically the, the study showed that there was no, no difference in long-term outcomes between either doing like a nuclear medicine stress test versus this CT coronary angiogram. And, some people read that as a positive towards CT coronary angiogram because maybe uh, it's less radiation and maybe shorter hospital stays. And some people said, "Well, we don't need to be doing this um, this study yet because it's not it's no better than what we already have." So, yeah, I agree. But I think that I think that anything that can get people the information they need without putting them at risk and radiation to me is a risk yeah. you know, over the course of someone's life. I think it is a good thing. The only thing is that like not every site has a coronary CT. Right. And not everyone's software is gated for it. And not everyone can read it. So I think, you know, if it was widespread, the, the nuclear cameras and echo imaging is widespread. And I think that has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Coronary CT, I think, is useful in the right people because sometimes you say to yourself, like, like I said, I had a few people that I did it and didn't sound real and it came back zero. But, you know, that's how I'm at a place where they can do that, but there's many, many, many places where they don't have that. Um, and so it's not necessarily that some of these people don't want to do it. It's just how do you get away from what the institution provides you? You can't. 
And so, you know, if you guys have it at your hospital, then, then you can start to have the discussions on like, you know, who's appropriate and who's not appropriate. But again, it still comes down to intermediate and, and what are you looking for, right? If you're looking to just get them, um, uh, you know, anatomically and say, look, this is not CAD, then that may be appropriate. If you're looking to risk stratify someone, so if someone sounds like they're intermediate, so you have a 58-year-old uh, diabetic, hypertension, et cetera, although they're intermediate because of their other risk factors, but they got no calcium at all, that helps you, you know, that helps you that their risk of CV events in the next year are a lot lower than, than the normal person with their risk factors, mm-hmm. because uh, it tells you that that's not the case. So, or you have the opposite. You think that someone's a 34 year old, early heart disease in the family, smokes, etc., has some chest pain. You don't, you little worried and you find that they do have some calcium in the arteries. That person may get appropriately put on statin or ahead of time, or you know what I mean? You can probably bump them up in their, in their risk level and maybe more aggressive with what you're doing with them instead of just telling a normal 34 year old, like you normally would, which is like eat right and exercise. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, as far as, as far as the cardiac imaging, the, the only one we haven't really touched on is, is, uh, MRI, uh, which I have mm-hmm. not really seen much of. Yeah. So that, I think that, that too also comes down to whether the radiologists or the cardiologists at your institution are, are, are okay with reading them and are they trained in it because it's not as, it's not clearly, it's not that easy, but I don't usually order it looking for obstructive CAD. I've never ordered a cardiac MRI for that. The reasons to order for me is cardiomyopathy in a young patient, making sure that there isn't anything else for someone who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you need to know how thick the walls are because your echo imaging wouldn't give it to you. Or if there's a concern for anomalies, you know, um, uh, congenital or not, or history of V. So a lot of more like physical structural issues with the heart as opposed to obstructive CAD is where I start to use MRI, you know, cardiac sarcoid or, you know, you're looking for VT and you're wondering if it's really related to this and looking for a scar. So that's where I usually use cardiac MRI. I personally have not ordered it for any other functional testing at all. And I would probably say that most people haven't either. Yeah. And I, I I think it's expensive and yeah, I'm looking it up here and it's, it's pretty expensive. Although I guess if you want to have coronary artery disease, I guess San Diego is the best place to have it. It's cheaper there than Baltimore. How, how, how yeah. cheap? Don't ask why. I have no clue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, of... so San Diego, the price for cardiac MRI is six fifty to seventeen hundred dollars. Baltimore, Maryland, it's up to twenty six hundred dollars. Wow. Minneapolis, it's thirty four hundred dollars. That. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's almost as much as a uh, <laughs> as the uh, uh, insurance payment for left heart cath. How, how much yeah. is it? Th- how much how is that at Cash Lack? Uh, <laughs> free. It's about two weeks. <clears throat> it's about two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Time is so, money. And and just a brief, you know, we talk about all these scores like uh, Timmy and and Heart Score. If you look at them, the reason why they really kind of change things is that they incorporate biomarkers, right? Yeah. So troponin. So clearly, mm-hmm. if your history and your story, you're worried. Uh, it, to me, it kind of makes sense, right? If you get a positive troponin, you're going to take that more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to say, yeah, you know, we should probably get cardiology involved to say, mm. you know, what do you think? Like, should we do something or not? Um, clearly, if the troponins keep going up, that obviously is an, is an indication or a consideration for cath. 
uh, in the right people. If it stays flat, you can argue that you know what I can restratify them with with a stress test to see if this is if this is truly a problem because there's obviously a slew of reasons why someone's troponin can be elevated. It's not just from ACS, right. it's not just from obstructive CAD, um, you know, trauma, myocarditis, aortic stenosis, you know, hokum, all all these things can cause you to to spill a little bit of troponin. So remember, always take the information you have from the patient. But then also say, yeah, they're set up for CAD, but is that what's causing their symptom that they're having? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and to make the connection is a little can be sometimes difficult. Um, but I think that but I think that sometimes people don't pay attention; they just they just assume that it, it's related. Right. Uh, you know, as soon as they hear chest pain, that's it. You know, yeah. It's like, oh, like there are certain patients, they have a baseline troponin elevation and abnormal EKG, and they take an aspirin, and their Timmy score is going to come back high, but. Right, it's going to come back high to the question, exactly. Yeah. Like, what what are they telling you, you know? In you know, in preparing for the show, uh, and and this is an article we're going to link to in the show notes. I, I do think it's a good article for internists and trainees. The the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam article from mm-hmm. November 2015, where mm-hmm. they basically looked at um, like physical physical exam and and clinical impression versus if you if you add to those things the heart and Timmy score, and for patients. What was helpful was for for patients when they're first evaluated in like an emergency setting with chest pain, uh, they use the same number, similar number that you said, Neil. About they said about thirteen percent of patients would would have chest pain in that setting, and then they calculated the likelihood ratios based on the heart and Timmy score. And for patients with a high heart score or a high Timmy score, you know those patients should be admitted for further workup. Uh, obviously, and f- and for patients with a low score, that's pretty reassuring. Um, those patients probably need they can either be sent home or or have a just a short course, maybe two troponins. You watch them overnight or something. But uh, the intermediate folks were kind of in that gray zone where we're going to be thinking about stress testing, and I think that's yes. probably helpful for people that don't have their their ten thousand hours like you do of uh, evaluating patients uh, with chest yeah. pain. No. But, it- it is totally helpful, you know, and I don't, and yeah. I don't make it, and I, I hope I didn't make it sound like, you know, they're not, they're not useful at all. But yeah. what I was trying to get at was that essentially their, that score is, is telling you what the most important things are, you know, when yeah. you talk to them mm-hmm. and uh, EKG and, and biomarkers and things like that. But I'll say that when you're talking to them, I, the, the, the symptoms that I really pay attention to, jaw pain, bilateral arm pain, those things bother me. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a patient who had a negative dobutamine stress test, who the PCP appropriately referred because he said you know she keeps having exertional chest pains. I talked to her, she was here every time I walk up the hill it goes into my jaw. I cast her despite a negative dobutamine stress echo, and man, she had proximal uh, LAD. She had distal left main. She ended up getting a bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you hear those things, that's kind of where I get a little bit more suspicious. Like, uh, and- you know. And if you look at the sensitivity and and specificity of all these stress tests, it's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in the sixty to seventy percent, maybe eighty percent in some for certain tests. But it's not like ninety five percent sensitive and specific. But I think that comes down to who's being referred, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you can drop your sensitivity and specificity if you say send the four of us, you know, Mm -hmm. with no risk factors and no chest pain and you send us, well, that's obviously going to drop those numbers. And well, so, I, I do smoke, but you know, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the e-cigarettes. 
Yeah. So I think that I think that's the you know I think that's where that comes down to. Okay. And but those numbers can shift if applied to the right patient, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because if you if you send someone, if you send five people to stress testing and you send them and they were all intermediate and they were having relatively typical symptoms, most chances are they're going to come back positive, right? So you would say to yourself, look, my specificity and sensitivity are really high. But that's because you chose the right test based on what you were hearing and not just sending them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that I agree um, that those numbers are there and that's probably going to stay because, you know, you don't always have control over what other people are thinking. So, um, uh, but I, again, I think that you still have to just kind of use it and, and say, how can I, how can I, these are the, this is all this testing that's available to me. How do I make it work for me? Right. So I think, um, uh, we've definitely taken a lot of your time and I, I yeah, think we so. should just kind of like recap. So, um, maybe, maybe your take home points, uh, if you could give us those and then we can, we can close out here so you can go back to your go back to your fancy life in Southern yeah. California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I would say, you know, uh, although this sounds cliche, but the most important thing that we can probably do is is history and physical. Absolutely. When you're, when you're worried that someone's symptoms are related to obstructive CAD, you got to come down to what, what are they telling me? When is it? And rely on what you've learned before, right? Is it exertional, you know, all those scores are important, right? Diamond mm-hmm. and Forrester, it's important to know those things, not because you're going to write that in your note, um, but you're going to say to yourself, these are the things that I'm looking for. Um, and then I think the, the second thing is knowing who to test with a stress test and who is not that, not that, not going to be that helpful. Remember, intermediate people are the ones that really help you to say, I need to do something more versus I don't need to do anything. And that's like the non-invasive testing. And number three is, you know, don't be afraid to kind of stick with what your initial plan is. You know, if someone comes back, has a negative stress test, but you're still worried about them, talk to the cardiologist, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't let that skew you. I think sometimes we get a negative result and we say, oh, great, keep going. Um, but like I said, that one, that one patient that I was talking about, that PCP, uh, didn't give up and that was good because prevented a really really uh, potentially disastrous situation. So, you know, always trust what you're hearing and always take the extra couple of minutes to kind of dive in if you have to because that will make a huge difference. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank um, you, guys. I think I uh, feel feel a lot more comfortable now with uh, this cardiac imaging. Yeah, no, hopefully. Is, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have any other questions for Neil that you want to add in? Uh, uh no, not not really. I, th- I think most of the things that I wanted covered were were answered. So um, I I was going going through the articles that I had saved and see if there's anything any questions that I had from those articles. I think not. Let me just take a quick look here. Yeah, because we can always uh, just kind of yeah chronologically readjust things uh, in post. Yeah. Absolutely, the most important article is the patient satisfaction with coronary CT angio. Yeah, yeah that's such perfusion. a yeah. I Absolutely, most important one. I, I, I mean, you could probably just talk about coronary <laughs> CT I, and CAC kidding. scores for. I mean, there's so many articles right now. Yeah, but just forget, I did forget that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think people are trying to prove it one way or another. 
Yeah. And so that's why, you know, they're, they're trying I to push I saw some through. interesting, the, the MESA study, like the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, that was, I think they've, they had like around 7,000 patients initially, and then they kind of have restudied it several times, but they like looked at the, the AHA, ASCVD risk score, and like patients that, out of patients that were statin eligible by that score, when they, when they did... Um, when they did the CAC scores, like something like 40% of those patients had a CAC score of zero. Um, they excluded like patients over 75 or mm. whatever, but it was, it, I thought it was interesting. So that, that's one way that like for some of my patients, if they're really like, I don't think I need a statin and if I feel strongly that they are high risk, you know, that might be for an asymptomatic patient, I might be using the CAC score sometimes right. to try to mm. try to get those people like you know recategorize them yeah yeah um yeah and i i guess a couple of brief questions that that i do have here what's your take on cac scoring asymptomatic diabetic patients and if they have a low cac score about even considering stopping a statin yeah so i'll say that the, the i personally don't do that I, I don't cac scores for asymptomatic patients i don't do it uh right. it's, it's actually falls in one of those when you talk about the use criteria, appropriate use criteria, that actually falls under inappropriate. Yeah. So, despite their di- diabetes, because the secondary or primary prevention with statin is so powerful that I would mm-hmm. have such a hard time stopping that, um, unless they were like there's some other issue, like totally intolerant. And but then at that point, even if you didn't have a CAC score, you'd probably still stop it, right? Like you can't tolerate a medication, you can't yeah. tolerate the medication. So, um, usually asymptomatic patients, I don't. Uh, they they have to be giving me something to to make me want to do that and and again the, the risk versus the benefit of knowing versus the risk of, of radiation. Right. I, I think the way that I interpret it myself is that even with a negative CAC score, if someone has a history of diabetes, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be at risk for developing. Absolutely, they're still at risk for developing coronary Absolutely. artery disease. Um, Okay, and then another question I had was, and this is going to be brief too, um, what what knowledge or what what information do you have about using PCSK9 inhibitors for um, statin intolerant patients with a with that are at intermediate or high risk for coronary artery disease? You know, we don't have that yet, and I think partly okay. because of the expense. It's yeah, it's just, about six hundred dollars per injection. Yeah, so I, I I don't have any personal experience with that, so unfortunately, I, I okay. won't be able to comment on that, but. It, that's, it, it that's shows fine. it shows promise, but it's like anything else, right? The cost is what it comes down to. Like, yeah, it's very important that it works. But I mean, if you can't afford your medication, what good is it? There was a lot of talk about Diamond Forrester versus uh, Timmy and Hart. Um, so Timmy and Hart score. Um, my understanding is that it, it's basically just looking at or understanding what the risk for MACE is. Um, so it's a little different than Diamond Forrester. It's, it's looking at the risk for dev- for having underlying coronary artery disease. Um, and again, I, I just want to make sure that I'm teaching this correctly. But my understanding again is is the difference between ACS and CAD. Yeah. That mm-hmm. with a low Timmy or heart score doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have CAD. It's just low risk for MACE or ACS. Yes. So that, that that's um, absolutely true. So I actually use well. So we don't again. We don't uh, once you once you use these enough. You don't necessarily just say, I'm going to use this score, right? You're doing it all the right, time. Right. When you're talking to the patient, you're putting them through that score in your head. You're asking them the triggers. Right. You're so, asking them what it sounds like. You're thinking, you know, exactly. what is. So I think when you, when you talk to residents, I think you teach it just like that. Know these things. 
But what's more important is know what's the what's the components of each because when you know the components, you're going to ask that in your history. And yeah. you're going to say to yourself, this is what I think it is. So I agree. ACS, uh, I mean, um, CAD does not mean ACS. Exactly. Yep. I, I actually had a, I recently saw a 72-year-old gentleman. He was a retired uh, marathon runner. Yeah, it sounds like the, the typical person who would, who would have CAD at an, an earlier age. But um, So he's a retired marathon runner, and he was, uh, I think, a... I don't know, some sergeant in the, in the Marines. He was still working out, and uh, for about uh, four weeks before I saw him, he started having this uh, unstable anginal-type picture, progressive stable angina. If he had angina before, but he never, he never did. Um, and his EKG was completely un- unremarkable. His troponins were negative. His heart and Timmy scores were otherwise unremarkable. I still sent him over to, over to the ER, um, and surprisingly, within about 24 hours of admission, he started popping troponins. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, again, it, it kind of just harkens to the point that you, you really have to rely on your clinical yes. consult, and you can't just use these algorithms, no. because these algorithms will lead you into this, this clinical quagmire, and, um, yeah, so we, we, history and physical is an important thing. Yeah, we, we, had a, we had a patient who went, um, I think, seven stages on Bruce, uh, and yeah. then started having some chest pain, and had a proximal LAD lesion. So don't oh, so don't be fooled by oh he got he got five stages, his chest pain that he's having can't be real because these people yeah. just have a higher tolerance, you know they just have a higher tolerance and sometimes they need to get to that high level before they feel anything different. So yeah, I remember that patient ran for seven minutes and then all of a sudden he's like yeah now I'm starting to feel it. But imagine anyone yeah. else probably would have stopped at stage five, and have been like what's the point, you know? But we were like you know what just keep going just keep going just keep going. Lucky enough, lo and behold, that's where it was. So I totally agree. You know, negative stress tests, if you're still worried because you keep hearing something that's not right, talk to the cardiologist, figure out what's happening. All right. Excellent. Well, yeah. thanks for coming. Uh, that's all I have. Thank you so much. Yeah, for no, thank you guys for out. having me. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Tony Sideri. I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Wait, is that your middle name?